0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, May 15th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. This week, the Federal Communications Commission will vote to change how the Internet is regulated. The changes have been attacked as an end to net neutrality, but FCC Chairman Ajit Pai believes it's a move back to the light regulation that governed the explosion of the Internet. We spoke last week. What is the central misconception that people have about... A free and open internet about net neutrality and the sort of what seems like a stowaway on this net neutrality uh, notion, which is
1: Title II regulation. A great question. I think the biggest misconception is that Title II is the sine qua non of a free and open internet. That the only way to have an internet in which consumers can access lawful content is through these heavy-handed regulations that were developed in the 1930s to regulate the Mob Bell telephone monopoly and. Uh, the argument I have consistently made is that, look, we had a free and open internet for 20 years uh, from the dawn of the commercial internet in the 1990s all the way up to 2015. And so I think people's years-long experience with the online world proves that Title II isn't necessary uh, for a free and open internet. So I think that's the biggest thing that uh, uh, people should recognize. So what has changed about the internet between 19, from 1996
0: to today in terms of Uh, Americans' access to it, about how traffic actually has been treated by market participants?
1: Another good question. So I think the biggest things uh, in terms of infrastructure uh, have been the deployment of broadband networks across the country. And this is not to say that competition or the state of internet access is where consumers would want it to be or where the FCC wants it to be. But when you think about the fact that within 20 years, basically within a generation, We've had $1.5 trillion spent on infrastructure. Uh, We've gone from the 56K modems and the AOL CD-ROMs that were sent in the mail just 20 years ago to gigabit fiber networks now being deployed. Uh, It's a pretty remarkable thing, and especially when you think about the wireless side of things. Uh, Within 20 years, we've gone from uh, wireless communications, meaning a big brick phone that was pretty clunky and uh, gave you scratchy voice calls, to uh, the mobile revolution, where increasingly everything uh, on the internet is uh, has some mobile broadband component. I mean, these are remarkable features. I think uh, that that uh, have changed. The other big thing that's changed is just the innovation that happens on top of that layer. And so, 20 years ago, of course, we were just sort of experimenting with these different uh, consumer uh, applications and websites and whatnot. Today, I mean, the sky is almost literally the limit uh, uh, in terms of apps and other uh, online applications. In fact, you literally say the sky is the limit given that there is an app that will let you on uh, cloudless nights uh, you know, put your phone at the, at the sky and you know, try to identify different constellations. So um, I think things have changed a lot and consumers have been better for it. And I would argue that that Clinton-era light-touch regulatory framework that they adopted back in 1996 is the primary reason why. What of the concern that uh, – Providers of
0: services like Netflix uh, and others are eating up such a huge chunk of internet traffic and to the extent that uh, their traffic uh, is clogging networks that they are uh, essentially free riding on a system that they should actually be paying money for.
1: That's one of the arguments that we've heard a lot is that uh, at peak times, uh, Netflix constitutes something like 40% of all internet traffic, which is a remarkable figure when you think about how much content is out there. And this is an area where we've consistently said, number one, uh, the right solution here is to promote more infrastructure investment, not to heavily regulate things like interconnection, which the FCC doesn't have authority over. And number two, to make sure that we have the actual facts. So a few years ago, as you probably remember, that there was a dispute between Netflix and one of the major ISPs, and it turned out that the uh, re- the congestion was the result of the middleman in that case, the transit provider, uh, slowing down essentially the, uh, the transmission of Netflix traffic. So it, it was sort of a manufactured crisis that uh, didn't speak to the broader net neutrality issues that the FCC claimed uh, were in fact a problem. So uh, for people who live in
0: rural areas, and I used to be one of those people who uh, had a not particularly good internet connection, had to dial long distance to get <laughs> a, access to uh, services that I wanted to consume on with a not particularly great modem. Um, where do those people stand right now in terms of internet access and to what extent would, a, would Title II regulation uh, affect the deployment of technology that they might like
1: to consume? The answer to the first question is not where they need to be. And I say that not only as an FCC regulator but also as somebody who grew up in rural America, whose parents are still in rural America, a small town called Parsons, Kansas. And I'm keenly aware both when I go home and when I travel uh, around the country for this job that uh, there are parts of the country disproportionately rural that don't have the internet access that they need. In some cases, they don't have any access at all. In other cases, they might not have a competitive marketplace uh, in many cases, they don't have uh, the speeds that they want. And so something like a gigabit is just a pipe dream. They would settle for <laughs> – so 25 megabits would be a vast improvement for them. Uh, so that leads to the second question he asked was where does Title II uh, contribute to this? And in my view at least, it takes us in the opposite direction. Title II impedes investment uh, by these network operators who are building these networks to connect rural America – And if you think about it, of course, uh, from an economic perspective, rural America presents a worse business case for deployment. There are fewer people per square mile. Uh, The people who are in rural America have a lower median income than those in urban areas. So in terms of deployment, rural America is already a challenging enough business case. Title II makes that business case even more challenging because it's heavy-handed regulation, Uh, that layers on a whole panoply of of rules upon some of these smaller providers that don't have the compliance resources. And so for just a couple of weeks ago, for instance, we heard from 22 small internet service providers. Some are serving small towns that you never heard of, like Chaparral, New Mexico. And they said that Title II regulations, as they put it, hang like a black cloud over our businesses. They keep us from getting financing. They prevent us from being able to build out further those are remember the very companies that we want in order to provide internet access to these areas and at least provide a competitive alternative. And so I worry that Title II is actually uh, not just a solution that won't work for a problem that won't exist, but it is in fact the problem itself for rural America. What
0: does the FCC have the power to regulate? Because I I've considered, um, you know, when I first knew that there was an FCC, I just assumed. Well, they're not going to regulate cable because that's not an over-the-air broadcast, and and there's no uh, concern about confusion uh, of or people broadcasting on the same wavelength. Uh, so, why does the FCC regulate anything that isn't uh, some sort of over-the-air broadcast, where there is this
1: uh, you know wide open space that anybody can broadcast on? A good question. So the uh, academic answer would be that uh, the Congress has given us a very specific authority over these different areas that uh, Congress uh, in its wisdom or not, as some might see it, have uh, laid out very specifically in the Communications Act that we do have jurisdiction not just over the broadcast TV and radio airwaves, but uh, also cable providers in terms of how they manage their video networks or telephone companies, how they manage their telephone networks or wireless companies, how uh, they use the spectrum uh, to transmit wireless uh, data and voice. So
0: I understand it? wireless. I yeah. mean, it, I, I guess I'm not asking you to justify your authority. What I'm asking, asking is, is why do you suspect Congress wanted to regulate things where mm. there was no? You know, the the, the spectrum is something that uh, property rights exist in only because the government says property rights exist in them.
1: Right. I, I guess uh, there would be two main motivations that I would suppose that Congress had in mind. Number one would be the scarcity rationale, that if you're dealing with something like Spectrum that is scarce, then you need to have a regulator to manage things like interference or allocation of rights. I understand the that. The second piece, though, would be if Congress thinks that the marketplace in the absence of uh, prescriptive regulation would be broken. And so if you look at the 1992 Cable Act, for instance, the factual findings for that act presume that cable has a 95 percent market share of the video— uh, services that are being delivered and in the absence of these re- rules under, for example, Section 628 of the Communications Act or Title six generally, uh, if there's no FCC uh, to regulate this marketplace, then it won't be competitive. And, so I guess that's sort of the dual track uh, motivation. I would guess. What, what would you say cable's market share is today? Oh, it's fifty percent in declining. It's uh, a so the, 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 that rationale at least is is less strong than it was in the early nineties, without question. And I've said uh, going back a number of years, and if you look at those findings, it's amazing how much the, the marketplace has changed. Yet our regulations still remain on the books, and that's part of the reason why I urged Congress a few years ago uh, to grant us what's called forbearance to allow the FCC to have the flexibility to relax or repeal certain regulations that were in that uh, part of the Communications Act that are simply indisputably uh, obsolete uh, given the marketplace of today. Speaking of over-the-air broadcasts, uh, Stephen Colbert is on CBS
0: right. and uh, he—that that is an over-the-air broadcast. That's There's correct. There's clear, understandable authority for the FCC to uh, regulate. He is under uh, – or the comments that he made on his program have uh, – spurred an investigation.
1: Uh, how, how unusual is that? So uh, what is not unusual is the fact that uh, we look at every single complaint we get and we take a look at the facts that are alleged in the complaint, uh, try to do our own independent investigation, uh, apply the law in that area to the facts and then make the appropriate judgment. And that's sort of the standard operating procedure that the FCC follows generally and is following in this case too. The, the broader issue is to what extent
0: does the FCC direct or have the power to cajole broadcasters into altering content that appears
1: on uh, the airwaves or on cable networks? The short answer is that we don't. We don't get into the content regulation business. Uh, To what extent can licenses
0: be denied based upon the content that uh, 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 broadcasters put out there?
1: Yeah, and there the courts have consistently said that the FCC cannot uh, take into account the a particular content uh, that a broadcast—I mean, unless it's unlawful or uh, you know otherwise clearly in violation of the rules—the uh, FCC can't take that into account when it's uh, considering a license renewal, for instance. Okay, so
0: back to the the net neutrality issue. Um, you know, in terms of the kind of investment that we have seen since 1996, is there any indication that the imposition of uh, a Title II regulation? Uh, would or has already harmed the kind of
1: investment that uh, we would like to see in broadband? Absolutely. Uh, There's one study by a democratic economist named Hal Singer that has showed that over the last two years, infrastructure investment by the 12 largest ISPs has gone down by 5.6% or over $3 billion. This is the first time we've seen such a decline outside of a recession. Uh, secondly, there is another, another recent study by the Phoenix Center that shows what the investment would have been in the absence of Title II regulations or the specter of Title II regulations over the last five or so years, and there too we've seen a pretty big delta in terms of the opportunity cost of the investment. Now, to be sure, there are some. Uh, there's a study on the other side that suggests that investment is up, but there's some serious methodological flaws with that. For instance, it counts at ts capital investment in Mexico. And Sprint's change of its accounting treatment of handsets from an operating expense to a capital expense. So I don't think reasonable people, certainly not consumers, uh, would consider you know, some things like that, foreign investment, and accounting changes, to be a network investment. How seriously do cable providers, specifically,
0: you know, internet providers uh, for homes and businesses, how how often are they jumping into and out of specific markets to
1: provide their services? It really depends on the particular company and the market. What we do see is that the smaller cable competitors are especially sensitive to things like regulatory uncertainty, and so we've heard from a number of the smaller providers that uh, these Title II regulations, which have never applied to cable broadband service, are in fact impeding their investment. Even among the bigger ones, uh, we do see them now branching out. Uh, you know, we have seen, for example, on the uh, on the uh, telco side, you know, AT and T buying uh, uh, Directv. Horizon uh, investing in AOL and Yahoo, sort of non-traditional internet service provider businesses. And uh, part of the argument has been, well, if we had a regulatory environment that was more conducive to investing in networks, would those companies direct more of those funds into the network as opposed to uh, the application uh, layer, so to speak?
0: So you, you suggest and I assume you believe the numbers that investment is down and especially in, a, in an era where you're believing that regulations could be imposed. That could also impact the kinds of investment that we would want to see. Um, and so the, the final analysis is that without that investment, you don't have as competitive a marketplace. You don't have people jumping into and out of markets. Is there, is there a fundamental misconception about what constitutes a competitive market in the provision of, of broadband?
1: I think there is. I think, number one, a lot of people don't want to make – an accurate uh, assessment of what the denominator is, so to speak, how many w- what counts as broadband competition. So, uh, for purposes of these regulations, for instance, they'll want to say, well, wireless broadband doesn't count. We shouldn't just count it because wireless is different from fixed. But so, like an LTE uh, exactly. network, exactly, yeah. And uh, so, especially considering the fact that you know, smartphones are now ubiquitous, that a number of comp- a number of consumers. Uh, rely on mobile broadband as their exclusive or primary on-ramp to the internet, I think it's important to include them in the, in the equation. And even with respect to the f- wired side, uh, you, to, to the extent there's potential competition, if a potential competitor uh, could enter the marketplace and that exerts uh, what the economists call price discipline on the incumbent, uh, you, that is a sign that uh, there is more uh, to the marketplace that uh, the, the, some of the critics would suggest. So
0: how often are people arguing that – Having a single provider uh, with free entry and exit and into and out of that market, how many? How often is it argued that one current provider necessarily means that the market is not competitive?
1: It's a small number of cases. So, for example, we really recently. Uh, adopted... so you mean
0: it's a small number of cases because there are? It's very rare that there is just the one competitor.
1: Oh, oh so it's not? Yes, it's something like uh, I can't remember the exact figure, but on the enterprise side for businesses. Uh, We recently adopted an order relating to this, and what we found is that in something like one third of the cases, that there was one competitor without the possibility of uh, competitive entry in the short term. And so, for those types of marketplaces, we said, okay, this is not, this is clearly not a competitive market in the sense that economists would. uh, find it. And so there we could see that uh, regulation was uh, – more heavy regulation was appropriate.
0: But when lawmakers are making arguments about this or uh, people who are on one side or the other, how often do they argue, well, there's just one choice and therefore right. that's not a competitive market.
1: That happens all the time, all the time. And conversely, the argument is made, well, it's only competitive if you have, uh, you have 50 or a million competitors. That's sort of the uh, sliding scale. The more competitors there are, the more uh, competitive the uh, marketplace is. And that's not necessarily the case.
0: In fact, you can have many, many uh, participants in a marketplace who uh, are all under this heavy yoke of the same <laughs>
1: regulation and they're all – there. It's it's a – I guess, what would you call that, an oligopoly? Right. And a good example is the wireless marketplace where you have four national carriers that are vigorously competing against each other. Just in the last couple of months, they've all announced unlimited data plans in order to be more competitive. And you also have a huge number of smaller regional uh, and uh, even local in some cases, uh, wireless companies that uh, provide an alternative. So there, I think you'd be hard pressed to look at it objectively and say that that marketplace is not competitive, that it's a broken one that requires heavy regulation.
0: Where should the FCC have less authority?
1: Boy, any number of (laughs) – I mean I think one of the uh, things that would be helpful is for Congress to give us just general forbearance authority so we can identify those different parts of the Communications Act where our authority is uh, simply unneeded. Um, I think one area is just simply price regulation in competitive markets. I think it's very tempting I think for a lot of people to say, well, the marketplace isn't competitive even though it is. Or even if it is competitive, we need the FCC to regulate prices. And I think what people misunderstand is that price regulation comes at a very severe cost, that it impedes uh, or distorts at the very least investment decisions and ultimately makes for a less competitive marketplace over time. Uh, There's no better example of that than the wholesale marketplace. Essentially, one company builds a network and another company wants to use it. And historically, the FCC's answer has been, well, let's just regulate the prices uh, you know for company A to lease it to Company B. Very, very seductive, you know it seems oh, why who wouldn't want lower prices mandated by the government? But if prices are artificially low, there's not as much of an ins- investment incentive for Company A to keep building out those networks. And if prices are low, conversely, there's not as much incentive for company B to build out networks either because they, you know, they can get the access to the network for cheaper, or for company C to decide this is an opportunity to enter into the marketplace. Exactly, and who loses at the end of the day in the long term? The consumer does because you don't get the highest speed networks that you otherwise would get, and so that's one of the areas I think price regulation where, uh, you know, I, uh, I certainly has some intellectual forebears like Alfred Kahn in the 1970s with the Civil Aeronautics Board. And many others who followed him. But the the notion that over prescriptive uh, price regulation is the right way to go is something that I think is increasingly uh, anachronistic.
0: Ajit Pai is chairman of the Federal Communications Commission. You can subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter
1: at Cato Podcast.